This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 30, entitled Honest Talk About John 1-1. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. The beginning of the fourth gospel is front-loaded with a poetic hymn that the other three gospels do not have. John's gospel begins with a prologue, an 18-verse introduction that has brought about many different readings over the last 2,000 years. I personally enjoy listening to people give their reconstruction as to what the first verse of this prologue was meant to convey to its original readers. Unfortunately, all too often I am left thinking that many of these reconstructions fail to take into account one or more pieces of relevant data, context, or grammar. The purpose of this week's episode is pretty much to examine John chapter 1 and verse 1 to within an inch of its life. My desire is to establish the context in which the thoughts and arguments of John 1-1 sit. Furthermore, I wish to explain how the Jewish Christian author, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, what he would call the Hebrew Bible, was influenced by his Jewish upbringing in his depiction of the Word, or the Logos, that became flesh in the human Messiah. So let's begin. John chapter 1 and verse 1 reads in most Christian Bibles, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Since this poetic structure easily breaks apart into three parts, part A, part B, and part C. I will describe them as such. So John 1.1a will be, in the beginning was the Word. John 1.1b will be, and the Word was with God. And John 1.1c will be, and the Word was God. So let's start with John 1.1a, in the beginning was the Word. This phrase here, in the beginning, is an exact quote of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 in the Septuagint, in the Greek text, thus drawing the reader back to the original creation. So in Genesis 1.1, it reads, in the beginning, or the Greek phrase, in our he, God created the heavens and the earth. So there we see in the beginning, and then it draws the reader to a time or a summary statement when God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, within Genesis chapter 1, we can see that the way that God goes about creating the heavens and the earth is with his creative and powerful speech. While in John chapter 1 and verse 1, we have in the beginning, the same Greek phrase, in our he, was the word, and this word goes on to be the vehicle through which God creates all things. So I think there's a pretty easy parallel there to where in Genesis 1-1, we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then in Genesis 1, we have in the beginning was the word through which God created all things. In Genesis, this word that is present is the creative and powerful spoken utterance of God. And I cannot emphasize this enough, is that the word in Genesis chapter 1 is not a separate conscious person alongside God that does the creating. No, the word in Genesis 1 is God's own creative speech. It's his powerful utterance, which is why I like the description the creative and powerful spoken utterance of God. We can see this in a variety of places within Genesis chapter 1. I'll just look at a couple examples. Genesis 1-3, where it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Notice there, God speaks, and creation takes place. Genesis 1-6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. 
and let it separate the waters from the waters. There again, God speaks and creation comes into existence. Genesis 1.9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. There again, God speaks with his creative and powerful utterance and creation comes into being. As it says in that verse, it was so. Furthermore, we could use the Hebrew word for word, which is the word devar in Hebrew. And this occurs 1,400 times in the Old Testament. Actually, a few more times than 1,400, but 1,400 is a good way to round it off. And you could look up every single one of these. You could look it up in a Bible dictionary. You could look it up in a lexicon. And it never, ever, in any of its 1,400 occurrences, refers to an actual person or conscious person alongside God. So in 1,400 occurrence, the word in the Old Testament is never described as a person. Now, sometimes it gets personified, and it's given personality, not within narrative sections, but within poetry sections, like the book of Psalms or in the poetic sections of Isaiah. So let's look at a couple of these places here just to make sure that we are clear with how the Hebrew Bible, how the Old Testament is using this word, word, the Hebrew word, devar. Sometimes, on rare occasions, it does get personified, and that personification gets drawn into John chapter 1 and some of the later verses. So here's some examples of personification. Psalm 107 and verse 20 says, He sent his word and healed them, and it delivered them from their pits. Okay, so this is God sending his word. His word is something there that can be sent. And it says he healed them, or is it the word that healed them? But it specifically says here that it, probably the word, delivered them from their pits. So the word here is something that gets personified as something that can be sent. Potentially, it's the thing that actually does the healing and the thing that actually does the delivering. But it's actually God doing the healing and the delivering because God is sending and authoritatively commissioning this personified word. That's Psalm 107 and verse 20. We can also see in the book of Psalms in Psalm 147, starting in verse 15, where he sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. That's Psalm 147, verse 15, to where God again sends and commissions his command, his word, and there we see the word personified as something that is running very swiftly. It's running very quickly. A few verses later, in verse 18 of Psalm 147, it says, he sends forth his word and melts them. Very similar to what we read earlier in Psalm 107. So again, God's word often is personified as something that God can send and something that can accomplish God's will and desires. We can also see this in Isaiah 55 and verse 11. Remember that the Old Testament prophets are mostly written in poetry. Okay, Many people think that poetry is a rare part of Old Testament prophecy, but in fact, most of it, probably two-thirds of it, is actually written in poetry. Isaiah 55 and verse 11 has this. So will my word, God speaking, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. That's Isaiah 55 and verse 11, where God speaks and he says that he has sent forth his word and the word is going to accomplish what God desires and is going to succeed in the manner for which he has sent it. But this word, which is personified, gets sent 
and it accomplishes the desire of God. So there's a close connection here with the word and God's own desire. The word is an expression and brings about and carries about and accomplishes what God wishes and wills and desires. So we can see there within the Hebrew Bible that God's word is both the creative and powerful speech of God that brings about things into existence and at times in poetic sections of the Hebrew Bible, it gets personified, almost appearing as a person that God sends to accomplish his desire and to do his good work. So in John 1.1a, when it says, in the beginning was the word, it is drawing readers back to Genesis, back to that particular word that throughout Genesis 1 is the creative agent through which God speaks and brings about creation into existence. And that word is a very reflection of God's will and desire. We can move on here into John 1.1b, which is the section that we have entitled regarding, and the word was with God. This is not a common way that Americans or modern Westerners speak about our words. We don't typically talk about our words being with us, but this was a very common phrase within, again, notice this, Jewish poetry. Let's look at some passages here in Jewish poetry, starting in the book of Job. Job chapter 10 and verse 13 says, Yet these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that this is with you. Okay, notice the things that this person conceals in their heart are said to be with him, using the Hebrew word im. It's a common word for with in the Hebrew language. Okay, that's Job 10 and verse 13, to where the things concealed in someone's heart are actually with him. Okay, they're with him, they're close to him, they are concealed in his heart. We can move on elsewhere in Job, in Job chapter 23 and verse 14, where it says that he performs what is appointed for me. This is God. God performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. There again, God's decrees, God's spoken words, his spoken utterances are with him. Again, using the Hebrew word im, the word for with. Okay, And in Job 27 and verse 11, the writer says, I will teach you with the hand of God, and what is with the Almighty, I will not hide. Okay, The things that are taught from God's hand, that come from God, are actually with him. Using, again, the Hebrew word im, the word for with. And these things are with God, they are with the Almighty. So it's a variety of places within the book of Job that God's words and his decrees are with him. Okay, But these aren't words that are conscious persons alongside God. No, these are God's decrees. These are his spoken utterances. These are the things that are concealed in one's heart. These are things that are within the hand of God. We can move to some passages outside of the Hebrew Bible, but passages that are contemporary with the writing of the Gospel of John that were included in the Septuagint. Looking at Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 9 and verse 9. Wisdom of Solomon is a very important passage when understanding John's prologue. In Wisdom 9, 9, it says that wisdom is with you and knows your works. Of course, by the time that John was written, the word or the logos was nearly synonymous with God's wisdom. God's word is God's creative and powerful speech through which God has created the world. And God's wisdom is God's wise interaction with and instruction to his creation. And God has also created the world through his wisdom. So if God creates the world through his word, and if God creates the world through his wisdom, then it's very clear to see that there is overlap between word and wisdom. And many scholars today make this very same point in regard to John chapter 1.
But in Wisdom 9.9, we see that wisdom is with you, just like we've seen that the Word is with God. And in the book of Sirach, chapter 1 and verse 1, also in the Septuagint, we see that all wisdom is from the Lord and is with him forever. That's Sirach 1 and verse 1. Again, we're seeing that wisdom, which is nearly synonymous with word, is with God and with the Lord, with him forever. Of course, the idea of God's wisdom being up there with God in the beginning is something that can be seen in the book of Proverbs. Just a couple passages here in Proverbs 8 where we can see this concept very clearly. Again, Proverbs 8, within the poetry and one of the most poetic sections of God's personified wisdom, which says, Proverbs 8 and verse 23, From everlasting I was established. This is wisdom speaking as a personification in the first person. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. It goes on in verse 27. When he, God, established the heavens, I was there. When he, God, inscribed the circle on the face of the deep, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That's Proverbs 8, verses 23, 27, and 30, to our wisdom personified as the female agent of God's spoken wisdom, his wise interaction with the world, is up there with God, but this is poetry, folks. This is this is not to be read woodenly literal. There's no female person, Mrs. Wisdom, up there with God. No, this is just a poetic way of saying that God's wisdom and his wise teachings and the way that God wisely interacts with the world was with him. From the beginning, it's always been there with him. Just as we could say that God's words, his creative and powerful speech was with him because it was up there in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So, when we look at John 1.1b, where it says, and the Word was with God, this is not saying that there is a conscious person, Mr. Word or Mr. Logos, that was up there with God, meaning that there were two persons there. No, it's another way of saying that God's words are with him, they're close to him, they're within his heart. By closely being with God, they're expressing who he is and his nature, and they're expressing what God is attempting to accomplish. Notice that we've seen a variety of passages here, at least five, to where God's word and God's wisdom is spoken of as being with God. And all these passages, by the way, are in poetic sections, just like John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, also encompass a poetic section of Scripture. We can move on now to John 1.1c, the phrase which says, and the word was God. And the word was God. Okay. It's actually normal for people to read this passage and to equate the word with God, as if the original writer was trying to say, and the word was one-to-one -one equal and to be equated with God. They understand the verb to be in the past tense, and the word was, that word was, as being a way of equating one to the other, as in the word is equal to, and the word is the same thing as God. But is this actually the case? Even in English, the verb to be is quite flexible. And it could mean a variety of things. It needs to be defined a little more fully. The Greek grammar here is actually uh, quite clear, as we're going to see, in that the noun God in the phrase, the word was God, actually is going to function adjectivally in a way that you could almost go about and translate John 1.1c as the word was fully expressive of God, or the word was godly, or the word was divine, something like that. Okay, And this is something that we can see in a variety of modern commentators and Greek linguists, ranging from conservative all the way to liberal. So this is not 
a particular explanation of John 1.1c that is based on someone's theological presupposition. This is something that people are saying regardless of the position that they start. So in Merrill Tenney's commentary called John, A Gospel of Belief, he says this in regard to John 1.1c. When the article is used, the emphasis of the word is on individuality, God as a person. Without the article, the emphasis is on quality, God as a kind of being. That is on page 65 of his commentary on the Gospel of John. So there, Merrill Tenney is talking about this phrase in John 1.1c, where it says in Greek, kephaos in o logos, where you have and, God, without the article, was the word, where we have the article with the word, kephaos in o logos. And here he notes that without the article, the emphasis is on quality, God as a kind of being. They're noting that the word God in John 1.1c and the word was God needs to be functioning more as a quality, as a kind of being, rather than a noun. We can move on and we can see that Barclay Newman and Eugene Nita's Translator's Handbook on the Gospel of John, which is an official work, says this about John 1.1c, quote, Since God does not have the article preceding it, God is clearly the predicate and the word is subject. This means that God is here the equivalent of an adjective, end quote. That's from the Translator's Handbook on the Gospel of John, page 8, by Newman and Nita. There again, they're saying what we saw Merrill Tenney saying, which is that the noun here, God, needs to function as an adjective so that I can translate it as the word was fully expressive of God or the word was divine or the word was godly, something like that. Let's move on. Let's look at some other scholars. John Barclay, a famous scholar from the previous generation, says this, When in Greek two nouns are joined by the verb to be, and when both have the definite article, then the one is fully identified with the other. But when one of them is without the article, as we're seeing here in John 1.1c, it becomes more an adjective than a noun and describes rather the class or sphere to which the other belongs. That's uh, John Barclay's work, Jesus as they saw him on page 21, where he says here in regard to John 1 that when the noun God is without the article and it's equated with another noun with the verb to be, then it describes the class or sphere to which the other belongs and it functions more as an adjective than a noun. Now we can move on to Daniel Wallace's Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, which is a common and a standard Greek grammar. And he says this in regard to John 1.1c with this word God without the article. He says, and the word was divine. And he thinks that divine is the most appropriate way of explaining this word because it's functioning as an adjective. He says that on page 269 of his standard Greek grammar. So what we're seeing there is that a variety of scholars both conservative and liberal, are saying that the best way to understand John 1.1c is to regard the word God more as an adjective than a noun. And so to say, and the word was God, as we're seeing in John 1.1c, what John is really trying to say there is that the word was fully expressive of God, or the word was divine, or the word was godly. He's not trying to say that the word was one-to-one -one equated with God, and that those two words, those two nouns, are interchangeable. Far from it. That's not what he's saying. 
It's no different than what we saw in Isaiah 55 and verse 11, which says that God sends forth his word and it's going to accomplish what he desires. And thereby the word that is sent from God is something that expresses God's desires. It functions adjectivally. So in short, John 1 is basically attempting to convey the following propositions. In the beginning, references in the beginning of the Genesis creation, and there we see there God doing his creating and bringing about his good and ordered and wise creation through his creative and powerful speech, through his word. Okay? That word was with God, meaning it was next to him, it was closely associated with him, it was in his heart, it was in his mind. And that word was fully expressive of God in that when God created his good creation, it was a reflection of God and his own goodness. Okay, Again, all of these things can be said of the creative and powerful word of God because the word is God's creative utterance and not a separate conscious person alongside God in heaven. Nowhere in the Old Testament or in extra-biblical literature is the word a person or on its way to becoming such. The only time when we see the word becoming a person is in verse 14 of John's gospel, of John's prologue, John chapter 1 in verse 14, where the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. There we see the word becoming enfleshed and embodied in the human Jesus. But prior to that, the word within the Old Testament and within Jewish literature is just God's creative utterance. It's a spoken word. Sometimes it is personified as a male, but personification should not be confused as a separate person alongside God. So, in conclusion, we have observed that, point one, John 1.1 begins by pointing the readers back to the Genesis creation where God created the heavens and the earth with his creative and powerful word. This is the word that was in the beginning as stated in John 1.1. 1, 1. Point two, we noted that by stating that the word was with God, the fourth gospel is drawing upon a common poetic depiction of God's words and decrees being with him, all of which coming from poetic sections of scripture and poetic sections of contemporary Jewish writings, such as the book of Sirach and the book Wisdom of Solomon. And finally, the expression that the word was God would have been heard as an expression of the character of the word being godly, divine, and fully expressive of God. Many interpreters of the Greek text of John 1.1, ranging from conservative to liberal, attest that the word God in this phrase, the word was God, needs to be read adjectivally rather than an ordinary noun. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast and you would like to financially support the work that it's doing, please check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. I am your host, and until next time, take care.